I've, <laughs> I've shared before, I have a crazy playlist, okay? I'll listen to a lot of different things. But I do, on average, listen through the entire Messiah about once a month. Um, and I want to encourage you to do the same thing because it's just an amazing opportunity to see a big picture, if you will, of the gospel. See a big picture of the kingdom and do so in such a, in such a beautiful way. As we look at Revelation chapter 11, we see before us this that we've heard sung. Now, the, the text in Handel's Messiah, especially for the Hallelujah Chorus, has three different verses, three different passages from Revelation as the theme. And this isn't a, a sermon of musicology, but it's just laying the groundwork, okay? In Revelation 19, chapter, in chapter 19, verse 6, it says, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reign, or as King James said, the Lord God reigneth. Um, as it's in the Messiah. Later on in verse 16 of the same chapter, it says, On his robe and his thigh he has written the name King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And then, of course, the text from today's passage. So many of us have sung that or heard it sung for years. Here's the thing. Many of us have prayed since probably the first prayer that we memorized. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And our passage today is the fulfillment of that prayer. It is, is God's answer to that prayer. And so as we look at this, let's, let's just first look at the text, okay? Revelation chapter 11, I'm going to start reading in verse 15. I'm not going to read the whole chapter again. And just to help us kind of get a picture of where we're at, and I'll go over the context in Revelation in just a second, but Revelation 11, and I think specifically this passage, verse 15, is the center at, of, of the book of Revelation, okay? It's at the center of the book textually, where it, where it lands in the, in, in, in the text itself, and it's at the center of the book thematically, of what it is that John is telling us here, what comes from that. So as we look at it, it says in verse 15, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on the thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants the prophets and saints and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumbling, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you today for showing us Jesus. We pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts to see your glory more fully. And with the eyes of our hearts, see and understand that you are seated on the throne, reigning forever and ever. Um, just, just shape our hearts according to the reality of that truth, God, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So the king is enthroned. He is sitting on his throne. He is reclaiming what is his rightfully and giving that reign to his son. And the language here is what 
Greek scholars would call prophetic past tense. Okay, there's a more technical word for it that I even have a hard time pronouncing. But what it means is that although these words were written some 2000 years ago, they are present tense in one sense. They are present tense in reality, even though they are past tense, if you will, in the context of what we're reading. It was written so long ago, but it's true today. Ben beautifully read Psalm 2. We'll look at that in a minute. We're also reminded, I hope, of Daniel and the visions that Daniel saw. All of that is fulfilled for us in this passage of Scripture. It is fulfilled here, but we're going to see more of it unfolding. That's, that's, the, that's the way we see this laid out before us. This is true. And we'll see the details of how it unfolds as we look at the rest of these chapters, Lord willing, as we work our way through the book of Revelation. So let's look at the text itself. And as we do, I want us to think about the context in the book of Revelation. I'm going to take a few minutes to set this up because it's critical that we understand where we are in the Revelation, where we are in John's culture, in his church, and where we are in our culture, in our church. It's important that we get that so that we see the significance of this passage of Scripture. In the beginning, at the first of, in, in chapter one of the book of Revelation, we saw heaven opened up and John seeing this vision there in the throne room of heaven. He heard Jesus say, fear not. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore and I hold the keys of death in Hades. That was what Jesus proclaimed to him. And then he was given this instruction in chapter one. It says in verse 19, write these things you have seen, things that are And things that are to take place after this. So John begins to write this vision of what is the case then, looking back into the Old Testament. And then what is also the case then in the churches that he was leading, those seven churches where he sends this letter. And then prophetically what will take place. All of that is in the book of Revelation. And so as we get into chapter 4, the throne room of heaven is opened and we see God being worshipped as the creator. That's the focus in chapter 4. He's the God who created all things by your will. They existed and they were created. They all, the saints of heaven, sing that. Then in chapter 5, Christ, the Lamb, the Lamb who was slain, is worshipped. And it says there, they sang a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. This, this vision is, is one that should be at the very core of who we are. We'll see it again in chapter 7. Then Christ takes this scroll, and it's got seven seals on it. And he begins to unseal that scroll as we work our way through chapter 6. First, there was the first four seals, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. You remember that? We talked about how those four horsemen represented deception. And war and famine and starvation and all that goes along with that. Then later on we see the fifth seal. And this one was unusual because in the fifth seal, what is the focus there is the martyrs who are gathered there below the throne of God, the text tells us. And they're praying. They're crying out to God. O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And the answer was, wait. Wait a little longer. Because your number is not complete. There are more who will die for the faith. It says there is that sixth seal. And then the sixth seal in Revelation 6. is, And it said the sky vanished like a scroll rolled up. Every mountain and island was removed from its place. 
Notice it says, then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks and the mountains, calling on the mountain and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. There's that phrase. And I kept that thing has just been rolling in my mind over the months. It seems so paradoxical. The wrath of the lamb. We will see that unfolding through the rest of the book. Who can stand, it says. Well, the answer comes in this interlude. There's a break in chapter 7. 144,000 and then the multitude that no one could number. People, that says, from every tribe and people and language and nation standing before the throne, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. This is a picture of the redeemed saying salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's the answer to the question. That came up in the chat. Who can stand? Well, it's these who are redeemed. It's these who stand. Then in chapter 8, the seventh seal is broken. And seven trumpets are revealed. And there's silence for 30 minutes in heaven, it tells us. Silence over the holiness that's being revealed, maybe. Silence over the wrath that is about to be demonstrated and what they're about to see. And then there's these trumpet blasts, okay, starting in chapter 8. There's hail and fire and one-third of the earth burned up. Then the next trumpet sounds. And the ocean, one-third of the ocean and the ships that are on it are destroyed. And then the next trumpet is blown. And, and, the, and a third of the fresh water, wormwood it's called, is poisoned on the earth. Then fourth trumpet is blown and sun, moon, and the stars lose one-third of their light. I don't understand how that takes place, but it's darkened one-third when that trumpet is blown. Then the fifth trumpet blows and these terrible locusts come up out of the abyss and bring torment. And it says there that people pray to die. They seek death and they can't find it. And then it says that that sixth trumpet is blown and this demonic army comes up from the abyss and a third of humanity is slaughtered. We just can't picture the, the violence and, and what's taking place. We need a break. And that's what we get in chapters 10 and 11. It's another interlude. You remember chapter 10, this great angel, this angelic being stands with one foot on the land and one foot on the sea and he holds this little scroll and he commands John is commanded to come up and take that scroll and to consume it, to eat it and assimilate it and let it be a part of who he is. And it's bittersweet. It says it'll be sweet to your mouth and bitter on your stomach. And you're to proclaim that message, it says, to the nations and to the kings. Well, how is he to proclaim it? Well, again, we saw last week these two witnesses that are given for us there. And these two witnesses are, are prophesying, proclaiming. I think they're speaking that bittersweet word of the scroll. And they're doing it in the power of the Holy Spirit. They're doing it in the strength of the Lord. They do it until they're finished. And then they are killed by the beast that came up out of the abyss. Three and a half days the earth celebrates. They, they, have, a celebra- they have a holiday because of the dead martyrs. Because of the dead witnesses. And then they're raised and God breathes life into them and he and he brings them up to heaven and there's fear. And it says the second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. And then we come to this seventh trumpet. That's that's where we're at. Well, what does that mean to John's writer to the to the those who heard this letter read? Okay, 
So often, and we've talked about this, our tendency with the book of Revelation is to figure out what it's going to mean tomorrow. What it's going to mean. How can I watch Fox News and understand Fox News better from the book of Revelation? Well, I would suggest we look at our own hearts first. Say, God, what can I learn about myself? And what can I learn about you? And how can I apply that in my life? And so in John's day, and I hold to the view that Revelation was written later. I think when John was an old man, A.D. 90 or so, I hold my personal opinion is that Revelation was not written to refer to the fall of Jerusalem and the temple, but to refer to more end times things. And as we read that, the context then in that understanding to these, especially to the Jewish people, was Jerusalem is destroyed and the temple has been destroyed in A.D. 70. The general Titus under the Roman emperor besieged Jerusalem and he did it around April at the time of the Passover. And the Romans were willing to let all of those pilgrims come into to Jerusalem for the Passover. He just would not let them leave. And so in April, they besieged Jerusalem. And for three months, starved the city out, literally starving to death. Hundreds of thousands, historians tell us. And finally, they breached the walls. They came in and they destroyed the temple. Josephus says they massacred. His number is 1.1 million of the number of people that the Romans killed. And the temple was destroyed. And you can still see the ruins. It's called the Western Wall. That's where people pray and gather and take pilgrimages there. But that's all it is. It's just a site of pilgrimage. And so that's the picture of what's going on in John's day. And I think if you look back in Revelation chapter 3 and start to, and start to read these letters to the churches, we get the context for the community of faith then. And it's important, church. I'm taking the time to do this because before we can understand the significance that God is ruling and reigning, we need to recognize where we are. And I think we see where we are by seeing the timelessness of what went on in those letters to the seven churches. Remember, Revelation is apocalyptic literature. It is strange. It is also prophetic literature, but it is also a circular letter. I think this letter was read just in one sitting. You can do that pretty easily. You can read it in an hour or so. And I think it was read in these seven churches, just continually read as it went from church to church. And it spoke to those people about the fact that they were under attack. They were under attack culturally. They were under attack politically. They were under attack spiritually. They were under attack economically. And the message over and over and over to these seven churches is do not compromise. Conquer. Don't compromise. Conquer. And in each of those letters... Every one of them, it says, conquer. Revelation 3.21, to the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I have conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Later on in chapter 14, we'll hear it's a call for endurance. That's what Revelation is. It's a call for endurance. And you know what? Because we know how it ends, we know it's worth it. We know it's worth it to endure. I remember I went back and looked at the sermon I preached from the, the letter to the church at Ephesus, you know, remember them? They'd left their first love. And there were three things in that letter that we pointed out. One was the danger of distraction. Something there in Ephesus had distracted them away from Jesus, from the gospel and from the kingdom. The second thing we saw was that distraction led to detraction, meaning that because they lost their focus, 
what they should be focused on just didn't mean that much anymore. They detracted from the value and the worth of the gospel and of the kingdom. And because it had been detracted from, then thirdly, there was just a displacement. So those three words, distraction, detraction, and displacement. What once was the primacy of their heart now was just laid aside. And Jesus said, return to your first love. That was what they were struggling with. And I think in our context and culture, we face timeless pressures. That, those words to those churches are as timeless as they can be. They mean just as much to us as it did to them. We face the pressures. We face, we face opportunities for compromise. We live as exiles, the word tells us. But we live in a country where, man, we live in a culture where sexual promiscuity is liberty. Where sexual identity is who you are. We live in a country where it's okay to compromise as long as that gives you the ability to make progress. We live in a country where we'd rather be entertained than engage each other in a helpful and productive way. We live in a culture where we are tempted to see the world as our home and the goal is safety and comfort. That's, that's the temptation to us as it was to them then. And we want to see our tribe increase. And we need to hear again what Peter said. That we are sojourners and exiles. And that's who we are. And we're gonna, that's going to be my application point when we get that. So why is it so important? Why do I take this time? Because as sojourners and exiles... We need to go right to the middle of Revelation and see who is seated on the throne. See who is king. And be sure that we're following him and loving him and serving him. To be sure that this vision, which is we understand seen with the eyes of the hearts, right? We need to be sure that we're seeing that. So that's the culture. That's the context. That's why it's so important. Now look at the text that says, it won't take us long to work through this. It's pretty straightforward. In verse 15, a seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. Now remember, the seventh seal had seven trumpets. Now we have the seventh trumpet. And in a couple of chapters, we will have the seven bowls of God's wrath. This is what's proclaimed. This is what the trumpet is looking forward to, what it's announcing. And it's basically saying it is finished, but there's more to come. World War II, for all practical purposes, was over on June the 7th, 1944. Because on June the 6th, 1944, the Allies invaded Europe. And they won. And for all practical purposes, World War II was over. Now, there was still fighting to do. There were still battles to be fought. There would still be casualties. But Paris fell in a matter of weeks. And on one front, Russia was defeating Germany. It was a race, really, to Berlin to see who could get there first. Now, it was bitter, but it was over, okay? It was over. And that's what we see in Revelation chapter 15. And Excuse me, in Revelation chapter 11. And again, it's prophetic past tense. There's more to come, but it's a done deal. And it says the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord. It's singular. Okay? Notice that. It is one kingdom that has been 
reclaimed by God. I don't know if you travel much, if you're an air traveler, you're familiar with, um, in, in the airline industry, there's One World Alliance, okay? Or there's Star Alliance, American Airlines and Canadian Airlines and British Airways. They all come together with these conglomerates of airlines. The idea is it's going to make your travel easier if they're all cooperating together. In theory, that's what they say anyway, okay? But they come together. They come together to further their purpose. The same idea, I think, could be seen at that building that's up in New York City called the United Nations, where these nations come together. It was formed in 1945. I was reading this week on their website. Just to, just kind of, all right, what, what's the point there again? Remind me. And it says, the one place on earth where all the world's nations can come together, discuss common problems, and find shared solutions that benefit all of humanity. So it says on their website. So this idea that coming together will understand this church in the spiritual world. The Bible teaches that there is one kingdom that is opposed by another kingdom. The kingdom of our Lord is opposed by the kingdom of Satan. And the Bible teaches that very clearly in the book of Revelation. This one kingdom is called Babylon. It's called the great whore. It's called the one that says later on, all the nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. The kings of the earth have committed immorality with her and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Jesus himself said in John 12, 31, the judgment of the world has now come. And he said, and now the ruler of this world will be cast out three times in John. Jesus calls him the ruler of this world. Was it not Satan who took Jesus to the mountain in the temptations in the wilderness? Showed him, it says, all of the glory of the world and the kingdoms of the world. And he said, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me in Matthew 4, 9. They're Satan's to give because he's the one leading and ruling. And what we have here is heaven rejoicing because the sound of the seventh trumpet is the sound that announces that God has reclaimed what is His. He has reclaimed what was taken by sin and Satan. And He's brought it back to Himself. And He's made it His own. And He's, and he's going to turn it over to His Son, it tells us there, as we saw. And now understand this. Human governments are designed by God. The Scripture is clear on that. Designed and ordered by God. But understand also that human governments are not and never have been submissive to him as king. They don't recognize his rule. They don't honor his sovereignty. So we need to understand that church is important. There are no Christian nations, have not been and will not be. There is a kingdom under King Jesus. And so we need to see that the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord. And it says, and he shall reign forever and ever. And then in verse 16, the 24 elders and their representative, I believe, of the redeemed people, the redeemed people of God, fall down and worship him. It says that they fell on their faces and worshiped God. And here's what they said. Now, I think my little the way my brain works is strange. I understand that. So I call these next couple of verses here the Cliff Notes version of the rest of Revelation. All right. Now, some of you may not know what Cliff Notes are. Cliff's notes. It's actually possessive. Believe me, procrastinating students like me were saved from destruction because of cliff notes. All right. We were saved from destruction because of that. 
In fact, I was reading this week the New York Times obituary for Clifton, Her- Clifton Keith Hillegrass was his name. It was in 2001 he died. It said, Clifton Keith Hillegrass, who for 40 years published Cliff Notes, the literary study guides that have saved millions of procrastinating students from academic ruin. <laughs> yes, New York Times, you got at least that much of it right. So this is the Cliff Notes version. Of what follows, because what is summarized in these next couple of verses is going to be detailed for us in the rest of the book of Revelation. It says, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was the God who reigns. He is Lord God Almighty. He is omnipotent and there is no one equal to him. But notice what it says next. He is the one who is and who was. Now, three times before in the book of Revelation, God has been referred to as the one who is and who was and is to come. But not anymore. Not anymore. He has come. He is addressed as the one who is. And he is addressed as the one who was. But he is addressed here as the one who has come and taken his power and begun to reign. It is as good as done. It is finished. And that's how he is worshipped. That's how he is seen here. And notice what it is that he has taken reign over and what's still going on, if you will. The nations raged, but your wrath came and the time for the dead to be judged. The rage of the nations. That's what we will see in greater detail starting in chapter 12 and 13 and 14. In fact, it's summarized, I think. Pretty clearly down in verse 17 when it says the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Because he sees that his time is short, he is raging. And the dragon that we'll see in chapter 12 and the beast in chapter 13 and all that follows with it is this this picture of the nations raging against God. Turn back to Psalm chapter 2 for just a second. Ben, thank you for reading that. Revelation 11 is the fulfillment. It's just that that ultimate fulfillment of what we see in, in Psalms 2. And my Psalm 2 in my Bible is marked all up. I have a sermon outline written in the margins here. Don't worry, I'm not going to preach Psalm 2 as well. But as Ben read that, I was just thinking through. It begins with this picture of this turmoil, the nation's rage. The idea there is it is just a fixed state of rebellion. It's constant. It's a picture of the human heart, but it's a picture also of the human institutions and administrations. The people's rage, they plot, they've set themselves. You see this, you see a four-year-old standing there defiantly facing down his mom and dad? That's the picture. They take their stand against the Lord. And they say, let's break off his bonds. Let's break off those chains. In verse 4, God speaks. Actually, he laughs. He holds them in derision. He mocks them is what that means. And he just speaks to them very clearly And very powerfully, he speaks to them in his wrath. And the word in that Hebrew, it's a a roar, or more literally, a snort of anger. And that's what God says and sounds to them. And he says, here's what I have done. I have set my king in my holy place. 
And then Jesus speaks. The son speaks in verse 7. It's an amazing back and forth. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, that's the, that's the son speaking of what God the Father said to him. You are my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me. We'll sing that at the end of the service. And I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. And here is the wrath of the lamb. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Actually entertained for just about ten seconds the thought of carrying a clay pot up here and smashing it on the floor. And I knew that JT would freak out. I knew that, um, you know, we would just have issues with that. But can you, can you just imagine that? Taking a steel rod and smashing a clay pot in pieces? That's the wrath that we see poured out here. And there's such grace. <laughs> Look, be wise, O kings. Be warned. You have an opportunity, man. You have an opportunity, woman. You have an opportunity. Turn to the Lord, serve Him, fear Him, kiss the Son, love Him, honor Him. Blessed are all who take refuge. That psalm is fulfilled in verses 17 and 18 as we see it laid out here in Revelation chapter 11. That's what we see unfolding here, the nations raging. Church, it's the same thing we see in Daniel. I wrote about this in my pastor's column in the newsletter this month. It's what Daniel saw in his vision, Nebuchadnezzar's dream. I had this dream, boys. I want you to interpret it to me. Well, great, king. Tell us what that dream is. Oh, no, no. I'm not going to tell you what it is. You need to interpret it to me. You need to tell me what that dream was and interpret it to me. Well, Daniel says, well, actually, the magicians say, only God can do that. Yeah, you're right. And Daniel comes and gives it to him. And this vision that he saw, listen, I'll just read this to you. Daniel 2, starting in verse 34. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were broken in pieces at the same time. and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. And later on, down in verse 44, it says, In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it itself will endure forever. The chaff that the wind blows away is the king and kingdoms and presidents and administrations and governments of this world. And there will be nothing left. Blown away. All that will be left is the rock of Christ. And the rock of Christ is what Daniel foresaw. And that's all that will remain. And that's the picture that we see here. The nations rage. Your wrath came. And it is time for the dead to be judged. This looks forward, I think, to Revelation chapter 20. That great white throne judgment where all the unredeemed will stand before God and give an account and be judged. We don't have to be afraid of that if you're in Christ. But that's what faces. It's time for the dead to be judged. But it's also time for the servants of God to be rewarded. Notice it says there, for the rewarding of your servants. And look who's included in that. I was thinking back on this when it said that all the kings and all the generals and all the powerful and all the slave and all the free wondered where they could be safe from the wrath of God. Well, here... All the servants, all the prophets, all the saints, all those who fear your name, great and small, are being rewarded. They're being 
if you will, honored by God in some way. It's an amazing picture. One writer said he will reward anything, no matter how great or small. He will reward great courage shown in the face of unreached people groups. He will reward those who take their life in their hands and may be dying for their faith in Christ. Or he will reward small things like giving a cup of cold water to someone in need. God does not forget anything. And he rewards. 1 Corinthians 3.13. Susan and I were talking about this last night. Paul writes, one's work will become manifest. The day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one of us has done. If the work that anyone has built is on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only through fire. It's what Jesus said in Matthew 25 as he was talking to his servants. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter the joy of your master. That's the reward. In the letters to the seven churches, to the one who conquers, I believe we're given these promises of reward. Now, yes, these rewards are all the same for every saint in some way. All right. It says the one who conquers gets to eat from the tree of life. He's not hurt by the second death. The one who conquers is given a new name. The one who conquers is given authority and responsibility in the new heavens and new earth. The one who conquers is given white garments. The one who conquers is given a new name. Amazingly, it says that the one who conquers gets to sit with Christ on his throne. Did you hear that? We get to sit with Christ. That's the promise. And those who are great, those who are small, those who are prophets, those who are saints, those who are bond servants of Christ are the ones who are going to be rewarded. That's what we're given. Notice what it says next. That those who destroy the earth are going to be destroyed. I think there's a picture here of the consequence of sin. Remember the, the, the ravages of war and all that comes along with it? And the destruction, if you will, of God's creation. Now, I think what is in view here is a picture of the sin and the consequences of sin on the earth. But I also think there's a there's a call here for us to be good stewards of the earth. OK, I'm not talking about being tree huggers, but I'm talking about taking a good kingdom focus on our responsibilities as stewards of this earth. And to recognize that to not take that stewardship seriously is to not take God's command to us seriously. All right? So I think there's those who destroy the earth are sinning against God. And we need to recognize that there will be consequences for that. But ultimately it is sin's destruction that destroys the earth as it destroys those who live in the earth. Now look at verse 19. The temple is opened. The temple is opened. What was closed is now accessible. What was unseen is now visible. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. Remember, church, God's temple in heaven is the model. Everything we see here is just, it's just a picture of that. The writer of Hebrews is so clear in that. The tabernacle in the Old Testament and the temple in the New Testament. They are built according to the model of that spiritual reality there in heaven. And here that door is opened for us to see. 
And the ark that was there in the Holy of Holies, remember with the, the seraphim's wings covered it, the high priest went in there just once a year and spread the blood on the altar as a picture of that propitiation of God's wrath, that God's wrath had been poured out on that lamb instead of on the people. And he went in and he spread that blood and it was a picture of acceptance. It was a picture of forgiveness. It was a picture of fellowship. It was a picture of intimacy. It was a place where the people of God met God, at least through that high priest. And here it's all open. Yeah, you think about that temple being, I mean, that curtain being torn in the temple from top to bottom when Jesus died and said it is finished. Well, here's that picture. Here that reality is seen for us in verse 19. Christ has made a way. It is open. We can know God. We can love him. We can be in intimate relationship with him. It's exactly what we'll see in Revelation 21 when that loud voice from heaven says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. So it's done, but not yet. There's still a lot to go on before we get to Revelation chapter 21. What a beautiful picture this is. Let me give you, let me give you four points of application, okay? Let me just... Help us think how to process this, all right? I went back and looked at our opening sermon back in January when we began this series in the book of Revelation. And I said then, the purpose of Revelation is not to spur our imagination with wild interpretations. It's to spur our faithfulness and our obedience. It's to open our eyes to spiritual realities. It's so we will read, hear, and understand, and then be blessed, be comforted, be encouraged, and be faithful that we will keep on keeping on, and that we'll do that regardless of what goes on in our culture. That's the point of the book of Revelation, and it is so beautifully summarized here in this picture. Greg Beale says that Revelation is the Bible's battle cry of victory, and that victory is summarized for us in these verses in Revelation 11. So just just remember Revelation's purpose, okay? It's to encourage us. It's to challenge us. It's to convict us. It's to just motivate us to move on, to keep moving forward. Secondly, it's, it's, a, it's a reminder for us to live for the king, all right? We live in a time where the king is invisible and his rule and reign is invisible to a human eye. But he reigns in our hearts. And he reigns in very real and, and history-moving ways. And we need to recognize that even though it is finished, and even though there is still more to come, this is the reality for you and me, church. And Peter tells us that since these things are thus to be dissolved, since Revelation 12, 13, 14, 15, and 16 are coming, what kind of people ought we to be? We ought to live lives in holiness and godliness, Peter says. Because we serve the king who reigns. He is seated, as David said in Psalm 2, on that holy mountain. We're called to live those lives of holiness and reverence and godliness. Live for the king. Thirdly, live for the well-being of the place we're in exile. That's, that's part of our calling. This is not our home, church. But we are not to forsake it. We are not to dismiss it. But we are to be very careful about how we do seek to serve it, okay? We live in this kingdom as exiles. We serve our king, 
And, and Jeremiah 29, 7 says, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. We celebrate the birth of our nation today on July 4th. It's, it's just astounding to me the way God just year after year, week after week, brings before us a text that speaks to the relevancy and the timeliness of where we're at. It's incredible that we're in this passage on the 4th of July to me. And it is profound too. Because we, I wrote this in my pastor's column, and if you haven't read it, go back and read it. I'm, I, I said in that column, we can and we should be humbled and we should be grateful that God has seen fit to allow us to live in a country with the freedom and the prosperity that we experience here. We can and we should be, be thankful for those who have lived and died in defense of that freedom. But we must diligently guard against the idols of politics and nationalism and the idea that America has any kind of special standing before God that will protect us from his wrath against the kingdoms of this world. America is one of those kingdoms that will be crushed under the weight of the rock of Christ. And I'm not being a doomsday prophet. I'm just being realistic about the biblical picture of the kingdoms of men versus the kingdom of God. That's just how it's going to end up, church. And we should live accordingly. And it's a timely reminder for us that are a part of the Christian church, the part of the Christian community, that, that our country, like every other country and king before us and every other country and king after us, one day will be blown away like chaff. But that does not mean that we're to ignore the well-being of our country. That is sin. And we are called to pray for and work for the welfare of the city where God has placed us in exile. And that's here and that's now. And that's our calling as God's people. And then finally, this text ends with this open temple, this open picture of the ark, this open invitation to see Jesus and know him and love him. And so we need to live for our live and serve and pray for the well-being of where we live. But we also need to live and serve and pray to speak the bittersweet gospel message to those around us that need Christ. Because what we're about to see unfolding in the book of Revelation we would not want for anyone. And we are called through the power of the Holy Spirit to speak that word into the culture around us. It says there will be lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder and earthquake and heavy hail. And that is not good news for those outside of Christ. But that's what we'll see. God help us be faithful to that call that he's given us. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this day and we do it in thankful, with thankful hearts. We do it in humility. Lord, you looked upon us before the foundation of the world and called us to yourself in Christ. It was a done deal. And you have called us to this place and this time to serve as kingdom citizens. We pray you'd find us faithful and that we'd do that in the power of your Holy Spirit, speaking the bittersweet truth of your gospel and of your judgment and doing it, Lord, it's the compassion and love of Christ. We pray for that. We pray for that grace, God, that we need to do that. We do thank you, Lord, for this country that we live in. We pray for those who are over us in the government. We pray for those who serve us. We pray for those, Lord, who in so many ways, their life's calling is to be a part of these human institutions for the well-being of men. We pray, God, that that would be the purpose. 
And use us, God, as salt and light. Use us, Lord, as servants to that end, we pray. Father, I ask today, if there's anyone in this room, anyone who hears this that's never trusted in Jesus, Lord, they're, they're still covering, they're still carrying the weight of their own sin and guilt. And Jesus, you came and lived and died to take that away. Lord, on that cross, the wrath of God was appeased. The holiness of God was held in place. The mercy of God was demonstrated. Lord, I pray today that if someone has never trusted in Jesus, that they would turn from their sin and trust in you right now. Father, we thank you for this word today. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.